Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Now I mentioned last week, here we are. I mentioned last week that Proverbs 10 starts a new section of the book in which we move away from entire chapters devoted to a topic and instead we jump into these short little statements, sometimes a verse in length, sometimes two verses in length and and very rarely does uh, verse 1 for instance have to do with the same topic as verse 2. It just kind of moves around and it goes to all of these different proverbial statements that are sort of collected and put together there in the chapter. So with that being said, here now in chapter 10, we are in the middle of the chapter. We left off in verse 15, and, and quite honestly, there's no real reason to go back and review sort of the context of things because, again, in Proverbs, in, in these chapters at least, context doesn't always matter. Uh, because each of the ideas are separate one from the other. So with that being said, would you look at verse 15? That's where we're going to begin today. Verse 15 reads simply this way, A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and the poverty of the poor is their ruin. A rich man's wealth is their strong city, and the poverty of the poor is their ruin. There's a couple different ways that this uh, verse can be understood, and I, I think both of them have some merit to it. So what exactly was Solomon's intent when he wrote it? Uh, I can't say that for certain. Um, Certainly the Holy Spirit can uh, accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish with the words that Solomon wrote in Scripture. But one of the ways that this verse is understood, this verse, a rich man's wealth is his strong city and the poverty of the poor is their ruin. One of the ways that this is uh, perceived or understood is simply that it's a reminder to be diligent in our business efforts. It's just a reminder to be diligent and do our duty in our sort of nine to five, get up every day and go do what you have to do. This promise that the rich man's wealth is his strong city and the, poor, the poverty of the poor is his ruin. It speaks then to the benefit and the stability that wealth has the potential to bring. And certainly we know we work hard, we do what we're supposed to do, we go, we get our education, we train ourselves, we show up every day on time and we're a diligent worker while we're there, we will experience the benefits of that. That's simply one of the ideas perhaps. And so it could be understood in that way. It's a positive exhortation to be diligent about your duty and reap the consequences or the benefits, and maybe is a better term, here on the earth. And so that's one way that it can be looked at. Or... Solomon may be pointing to sort of an observable, observable truth. That is, he's not exhorting us to get up and work hard, though he does in other places, and that's why we can, we can say that with certainty. But rather, what he might be doing here is pointing out an observable truth, and that is the idea then that Solomon is trying to communicate is the mistake that people of all walks of life make. And so if you're the wealthy, you begin to look at your wealth as your strong city. And I have everything I need, and I don't need anything else, and I don't need you to depend on you because I have everything I need. I'm strong and I'm secure. And the other mistake is that the poor person might look and they'll be like, woe is me, I have nothing. My life can't be anything of meaning because I don't have any uh, wealth or any of this world's earthly goods. Both of those ideas are wrong. You are not who you are because you have money. You are not who you are because you don't have money. You are who you are because of the work that God is doing in your heart. That's who you really are. And so if you're, you have great wealth and God is doing a good work within your heart, all of that wealth can be taken away and you still are who you are. And God is still at work in your life and you still have peace and you still have the ability to move on from there. And conversely, the person that is poor, yet they're rich in the things of God, they have the things that they need to continue to, to move on without being darkened or discomfited. And so uh, both of those mindsets, strong city or the poverty of the poor is their ruin, both of those mindsets would be incorrect. Our peace, our security, our firm foundation is not in the size of our bank account, but it's in the work that God is doing within our heart. Okay, so a couple of different ways that that verse could be understood You can dig into there uh, yourself and see what the Lord might be speaking. Now look at verse 16. It says, Now the wage of the righteous leads to life, and the gain of the wicked to sin. The wage of the righteous leads to life, and the gain of the wicked to sin. Wealth obtained by good, honest, hard work is wealth that God can bless. 
Wealth that is obtained through good, honest, hard work is wealth that God can bless. Such endeavors, Solomon is saying here, leads to abundant life. The one that we've been speaking of, John chapter 10, verse 10, that Jesus references. Uh, And so good, honest, hard work is wealth that God can bless. Conversely, resources that are obtained through sin inevitably lead to more sin. And so, for instance, you go and you, you have all this wealth and you got it from knocking off uh, a grocery store somewhere and you robbed that grocery store somewhere. Now, all of that money that you have, all of that wealth, that big bank account that you have, it was obtained in a dishonest way. It was obtained by sin. And now for you to go and spend that, you're either going to have to, in, you're going to enjoy it by sin or you're going to have to hide the fact of how you found that money, and you're going to have to lie about it as sin. You think about people that get wealthy by ripping off uh, on taxes and things like that. And then, you know, the auditor comes to your house. Is that the tax guy comes to your house? He says, hey, I noticed you had a whole big bunch of money deposited in there. Tell me about that. And you can either say, well, I stole that money, or you could probably lie about it, right? But So the gain of the wicked leads to sin. The wage of the righteous leads to life. The gain of the wicked to sin. Truly, the wages of the righteous lead to life. It's the type of life that you want to enjoy, the type of life of peace and uh, contentment with who God is and and what you have uh, acquired uh, in good, honest, hard work. Now we go on to verse 17. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Now notice there's a key letter in that verse. Anyone know what the key letter is? Let's have some fun. What's the key letter in that verse? What's ya? In? That's two letters. Or N. Did you say N? In. I don't understand what you mean. I'm just going to tell you. The key letter is that letter D right there. And and the E, okay? It's the E and the D. Because notice it says, whoever heeds instruction, as opposed to saying, whoever hears instruction. So forgive me, there's two key letters, all right? It's the E and the D, whoever heeds instruction, as opposed to it saying, hey, whoever hears instruction. Because whoever hears instruction is anybody that comes in this room. Anyone that picks up their Bible, anyone that goes to church somewhere, and they sit, and oh boy, I just heard a great sermon. And then they go out, And they completely ignore everything they heard, everything that they just read, everything that the Lord might have ministered to them. So it's not the one that hears, but it's the one that heeds. I feel like I'm screaming at you. I'm sorry. I'm getting a little worked up here. So the Apostle Paul said this. He says, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. That's the difference between hearing and heeding. James would exhort, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So it's great. I'm glad you come. And I'm glad you sit here uh, and learn this. And a lot of times the, the things that we teach our children year after year and day after day in their Sunday school rooms or at home and all of those things, by osmosis, many of those things, they pick them up and they just become a part of their lives. But just simply sitting here and hearing these things is not going to change us. And it's not going to change our lives, and it's not go- we're not going to build a life based on these things until we start heeding them and start doing them. And so, again, we're not to be hearers of the word only, but heeders of the word, if that's indeed an actual word. That's the promise of God's word, that if we heed, that if we listen to his, the instructions of his word and we submit ourselves to those instructions, that's how we build a life of wisdom. That's, how, that's the type of life that God blesses. And that's what we're desiring. God, I want your blessing on my life. Well, I'm sorry, I can't bless you when you're knocking off grocery stores. I, I just can't. But if you build your life on wisdom, I can, I can bless that. And so we want to build a life like that. And we do that by heeding his instructions. Now, the verse also goes on to say, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. And so conversely, the one then who turns his back on God's instructions and rejects the reproof that God's word brings, will not only themselves go astray, but as this verse tells us, will lead others astray as well. God's word exposes. There's this big trend within Christianity, you know, uh, to, to be, what's the phrase that's out there? Um, positive and encouraging. Positive and encouraging. I want to be encouraged. I don't want to be a negative. Nelly, is that the phrase that is out there? Old people, you know. Um, 
Len, you know. What's that phrase? I'm just kidding. All right, and so I, I don't want to, you know, just come off and start bashing people. But sometimes when I open up my word, I don't walk away feeling positive. I walk away feeling, oh, man, I got to deal with that area. And the Lord brought conviction, and now I have to respond to the thing I love, the thing I want to do, the thing my heart is drawn toward, and the thing that the Lord is directing in my life and leading me toward. That's not always a warm and fuzzy feeling. Sometimes it's a little painful. Sometimes I'm faced with a decision where, you know what, Lord, I've given you a lot. I've given a lot of my life to you, Lord. Do I really have to give this area as well? All right. yeah, thank you. She says, yes. Yes, you do, Greg. I've been meaning to talk to you about that. <laughs> God's word exposes areas of our lives, and it should. If you are open to God working in your life, your heart's going to be opened up. The, the opposite of that would be your heart has been hardened over, sort of a layer of skin has come over your heart, and it's been hardened over. And so when the seed of God's word is sort of trying to be planted into your heart, it just bounces off the rock-solid ground. And so if our hearts are open, God's word is going to expose areas of our lives that need to be brought into submission to him. Again, I was sharing with you, I talked to a lady in her 80s who was sharing with me about a conviction that God was bringing in her life. And I thought it was so fantastic because this person may be walking with the Lord 50, 60, 70 years maybe, and yet God is still bringing conviction in her life. And that's what we want until the day we go to the end of our days, whether we've been walking with the Lord for 60 years, 70 years, or just getting started in our walk with the Lord. We want to be brought uh, into the light of God's word and let it expose areas of our heart that are not pleasing to him so that he can change us. So his word exposes us it, to bring us into submission, our unwillingness to forgive others. So it's not always going to be, you know, you should really stop getting in bar fights, Greg. You know, it's not going to be that all the time. Eventually, my life is going to come to a place, hopefully, it's going to come to a place where people on the outside will look and they'll say, well, that's a pretty good guy over there. But I know the truth because I'm alone with myself. And I know what goes on in my mind. I know what goes on in my heart. And so God's going to continue to expose areas that the vast majority in the world are going to look at and they'll say, well, that's not even that important, Greg. But I know what it is because the Holy Spirit has brought that conviction. And so things like unwillingness to forgive others, hard-heartedness. I deserve, I'm a, I, sh, I deserve the right to be embittered toward other people. No, you don't. You don't. And so when the Holy Spirit brings conviction about that, that's an area of sin just as if you went and knocked off a grocery store. And so you've got to let God's word expose you. He who rejects reproof leads others astray. And we see this in the church. It's so fascinating. I read this book. It was called Exodus. It's about people that, it's in the Bible. No, I'm just kidding. It's a different book. It's a, it's a story of, it's a, like a survey, and then sort of the findings of that survey that looked at the mainstream Protestant Christian church in America, and it tried to answer the question, why are their numbers dwindling? Why are their numbers dwindling? And, and more and more people are leaving sort of those established mainstream churches that have been around in America for two, 300 years. And instead, they're, they're joining churches like a Calvary Chapel or a church plan or a non-denominational church. And why is that? And one of the things that it discovered was as a church waters down its message to be more applicable to more people, people leave those churches. And I just found that so fascinating because we've seen that in the U.S. church. We've seen that in the Protestant church, for instance, where people are afraid, you know, if we take a hard stand on that and we, we show what the Bible says about that and just say, look, that's what it says. I'm not the one. I'm not beating some, uh, some drum here. This is what the Bible says about it. If we do that, people will leave. And the complete opposite is finding. Those churches that do do that are growing. And those churches that don't do that are diminishing. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. He who rejects reproof leads others astray. And we have whole segments of the Christian church that are essentially rewriting certain things in the scripture because they don't apply to our times. And that's a big mistake. And the scripture talks about he who teaches the word will be subject to a greater judgment. And so certainly we feel for those that are moving in that particular direction, those that are being taught that, and even those that are teaching that. So God's word, it exposes it. And many times we don't want to be exposed, and so we reject it. And when we reject it, we lead ourselves astray, and we even lead others astray. We will never grow. You'll never grow in your walk with Christ 
until you allow yourself to be taught, until every area of your life is open and you say, all right, Lord, it's all yours. And you can address any area of my life that you want to do, that you want to address. And you will never grow until you let him have every single area. Some people think it's a mark of weakness to submit to the instruction of other, or that it reveals, well, I'm just stupid or something if I listen to other people. The reality, as the scripture says, the complete opposite is true. It's a mark of wisdom when you submit to the instruction of another person or you submit to the instruction of the word of God, not a mark of stupidity. Amen, friends? All right, the fourth proverb is in verse 18, fourth for today, that is. It says, one who conceals hatred has lying hips, or not hips, lips. (laughs) Yeah. And whoever utters slander is a fool. One who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. Now, in this verse, typically in our verses that we're looking at in these chapters, you have sort of a contrast. So there's the righteous person and there's the unrighteous person, and it's usually separated with the word but or something like that. And so you have a contrast from the two. In this particular case, neither of these individuals should be emulated. So you don't want to be a person that conceals hatred. You don't want to be a person who utters slander. And so let's look at both of these people that we don't want to be. The first, it says, hides his hatred. And the idea there with, this, with these lying lips is they put on their smiley face and they speak with insincere words, but they're masking what is really going on inside of them. And they conceal their hatred with lying lips, it says. The second person openly reveals their hatred by slandering the one they hate to anyone that will listen. And he says, whoever utters slander is a fool. Such person is a fool. Now, we know, or you should know, if a person is willing to run their mouth about another person behind their back to you, you can be pretty certain they're going to run their mouth about you behind your back to somebody else. All right, so be aware of that. People that tend to do that, and they gossip about other people and talk about other people behind their back, they tend to lose close, intimate relationships. Because the people they're talking to start doing the math and realize, I wonder what she's saying about me when I'm not around. And so people begin to become a little less trustworthy of that person, and they begin to pull back in their relationship. Slandering others to others is foolishness, and it will impact how other people respond to you. And so you have the first person who puts on their face and essentially lies to your face. You have the second person who talks behind your back. Again, neither of those are to be emulated. The third alternative to either being a hypocrite or a slanderer, the third alternative is to not harbor hatred in your heart at all. And so both of these guys are harboring hatred in their heart and they're coming out in different unhealthy ways. The third alternative is to not harbor hatred in your heart at all. If you have something against another and you can't get rid of it, so you go to your prayer closet and you pray, Lord, just you know, help me to forgive the person, take it out of my heart, and it won't go away, there are instructions in Scripture how to deal with it. It's not by putting on a happy face and lying to their face. And it's not talking behind their back. But the way to deal with it, Matthew 18 tells us, is to go to the person and have that difficult conversation. Well, that's too hard for me. I don't want to. I'll just break off the relationship. I don't need that friend anyway. That's not biblical. You could do that, but that's not biblical. If you can't forgive the person in your prayer closet, then as a believer, you have to go to the person. And you have to have that difficult conversation. When you said that, it really hurt me. When you did that, it really hurt me. And have the conversation and and see where the Lord will go go with it. That's God's means for dealing with animosity between yourself and another person. Not putting on a happy face and speaking lies and not speaking behind their back. And so that's a challenging thing, but nonetheless, that's what the scripture says. And I'll tell you, it's not easy to do, but there's great peace when we live at peace as much as it depends on us with all men as the scripture says. And that's a great way to live life, that there's nothing between you and other people. Verse 19, it says, when words of many transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Amen? (laughs) This is a good one. 
when word, you're probably thinking that about me. All right, when words are many, no, just kidding. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lip is prudent, is wise. I came across this quote by William Arnault. He said, the heart is full of corruption, and from a corrupt fountain, sweet waters cannot flow. If we fling the doors open and allow the emotions to rush forth as they arise, it is certain that many of our words will be evil and do evil. Because our hearts are wicked. And you fling those open and, things are, and you allow the emotions to rush forth as they arise, it's certain many of our words will be evil and do evil. The more we speak, the more vulnerable we are to sin. And so here's a, a simple word of advice. If you are a compulsive talker, you should beware. Some people are compulsive talkers. They talk a lot for all sorts of reasons. And so you get into a small group setting or you're at work or you're at the the dinner table or you're out to dinner with friends or whatever. Some people just dominate those conversations. They talk a lot. And sometimes people talk a lot because they want everyone to notice them. That's a wrong motivation to talk a lot. Sometimes people talk a lot because they want everyone to see how smart they are. They want to prove all of the information that they have. Some people talk simply to justify their existence. I've seen this. You've, you've been in meetings and you're just kind of sitting there and some people are like, when's this thing going to be over? Please nobody say anything else. But then somebody else will be sitting there and they'll be thinking, you know, I haven't said anything yet in this meeting. And if I don't say something, people are going to think I don't really know anything and I'm not a good employee or I'm not smart and I'll never get that promotion. And so then they just say something. And everyone looks at you like, really? Did you have to say that? We're, I want to go home, you know, this kind of thing. But some people talk to justify their existence. Some people talk because of pride and arrogance. I must speak because I'm the only one that knows anything, you know. And so they throw their words or their thoughts in there. Solomon says this, and he makes it very clear that the one who exercises self-control in his speech is wise, he says. He calls him prudent. Whoever restrains his lip, his lips is prudent. That is, they have discretion and they use discretion. They realize that they don't always need to be heard, and they don't always have to have a word that is spoken. You begin to understand a person that is wise with their words, you begin to realize that the crowd begins to realize is anything that does come forward from that person's mouth has been carefully thought through. There's been much circumspection. They've been thinking about what it is that they're going to say. They were hesitant to say something, but they did. And when they speak, because they speak so rarely, what do people do? You even hear people, oh, he speaks, you know. And people kind of draw in to listen because they begin to recognize that this guy doesn't just say everything that comes to his mind or her mind, but he's careful to think these things through. Again, to quote James in the New Testament, we quoted him earlier, a different verse. It says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And so I would encourage you, take these words to heart the next time you sit down with others for some conversation. You don't need to dominate the conversation. I have a general rule. If I'm not leading a small group meeting, my general rule for myself is I get to speak two times during that meeting. No more. All right, so I better be careful. I'm going to use up my two times, you know. It's not going to be to tell some silly joke. All right, I want to make sure my words are valuable. That's just my general rule. Maybe you could apply that rule to your life as well. Next time we'll have small group meetings stink. No one will want to talk, you know, or whatever. And, and the poor leader will be sitting there like, I worked hard on these questions. But uh, get the idea. Hopefully you get the idea of where that is going. Verse 20, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. I pointed out a few times last week that out of the mouth the heart speaks. Remember Jesus said that? in a couple places in the New Testament, in the Gospels, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we know that what a person says is a reflection of what a person is or who he or she is. And that is that our words, they're good indicators of where we are spiritually. And so as this verse says, the words that come forth from a righteous person, those words are like gold. They're like choice silver. They have great value. The words that come forth from a righteous person spoken in righteousness 
are words that are going to be helpful. They're words that are firm. They're words that they're words I should say that you know come forth with forethought and time has been given. They don't just come blurting out. And so those are words that can be trusted. And what we see in this verse here is it teaches us how to really value an individual. And so oftentimes we value individuals by the car they drive or the home that they have, or the job title they have, or their bank account, or the suit that they can wear. And what Solomon is making clear here, the one that is really valuable is not the one with all this great amounts of wealth or all the stuff that comes with that, but the one that is really valuable is the one that speaks words of wisdom. And again, as the verse says, the tongue of the righteous, it's like choice silver, whereas the heart of the wicked is of little worth. The one that speaks with wisdom is the one that we should truly value. A lot of times people, they want to hang out next to the rich people. I don't know, maybe they think they're going to drop money or something like that. The person you should be trying to get up next to and stand alongside of is the person of wisdom. Because hopefully you'll glean some of their wisdom. That's what Solomon is telling us there. In verse 21 he says, The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of of sense. Now, this word feed here in Hebrew, it could mean more than physically feeding a person, though it can mean that, but it can also speak of guiding a person, directing a person, leading a person. And the overall context of the verse where it talks about uh, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense, the contrast seems to be showing that he's talking about guiding people, directing people, and leading people. And so, the lips of the righteous, the words that come forth from the righteous can lead people. They can guide people. They can direct people. Righteous individuals have something worth listening to. And with that wisdom, they're able to guide people and direct them in in the way that they should go. Conversely, you'll see there, the fool is not only not able to lead his own life, but certainly does not have the wisdom to be of any real help to other people uh, as well. And so, consider what do you take in you take in messages all the time you read you read magazines you read the newspaper you read books you scroll through facebook you click on uh the the different articles that are written there you watch the the tv news and all of that the messages that you are bringing in are they the messages of those that are wise or those that are fools and i watch the news and all that stuff but be discerning what are the messages that you're taking in it's the, those that are coming from the, the righteous, that they will be helpful for you, beneficial for you. They'll guide you. They'll direct you. Whereas the, the words that come from the mouths of fools cannot even feed themselves. All right. Verse 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Now, this is a favorite verse uh, of the health and wealth gospel teachers that essentially say that Jesus came here to the earth Uh, yes, of course he came to deal with your sin and all that stuff, but really Jesus came to set things right on the earth, to create a new garden of Eden here on the earth, and they preach what's called a health and wealth gospel, that Jesus wants you to be completely without sickness, Jesus wants you to be uh, wealthy and without any difficulties here on the earth. And, And I think most of us are schooled enough in the scripture to see that's not what the Bible teaches, that's not the example of the great men and women of the faith, Uh, both in the New Testament and the years um, since the writing of the New Testament. And so we know that that's not the gospel message. But many that believe in that idea, they point to a verse like this, that the blessing of the Lord makes rich. So if you're doing what you need to be doing and you're walking with God and you're in a right relationship with him, then your bank account's going to be full. And in fact, send some to me, the TV preacher, uh, so my bank account can be full as well to prove God's blessing on my ministry, they will say. That's not what this verse is speaking of. Now, certainly we know in the Old Testament, as God was dealing with the nation of people, that we see his blessing on the people. And oftentimes, there are many times that came with wealth and cattle and land and all those types of things. But it's not necessarily the case. You remember Jesus in the New Testament. As he's about to start his ministry, he was baptized, he was driven out to the, into the wilderness, and Jesus was going to be tempted there in the wilderness. And I find it interesting that Satan took the Lord, and it says in Matthew 4, the devil took him to a high, very high mountain, 
And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, their glory, the wealth of all of those kingdoms. And Satan said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, Jesus, I should say, does not dispute that claim. Jesus doesn't say to Satan, come on, who are you trying to fool? You don't have control of all the kingdoms of the earth. Who are you trying to fool? You don't have control of all the wealth and splendor of the earth. Jesus doesn't dispute Satan's claim. He says, get out of here. I'm not interested in what you're trying to sell or what you're trying uh, to offer. But notice Satan's attempt was to offer Jesus all of this world's earthly treasures and all of the things that this earth does treasure like fame and notoriety and power and all of these things. And he offers him that to distract him, that is Jesus, from his eternal purpose. And I think Satan continues to use that deception today. And so just because a person has the wealth of this world does not mean they are experiencing the blessing of God on their lives. And a lot of people will say that. And sometimes people will say, how things go? Oh, God's been really blessing and they'll talk about how they're getting these promotions and their, their bank account is growing and all of this stuff. And I'm hesitant to agree that God is really blessing because of a passage like this. Because I've also seen as people's bank accounts are growing and their job is growing, their title is getting longer and longer and bigger and bigger, oftentimes what happens is they can't be home as much with their family and they can't be involved with their church and their small group as much as they were before. And whereas their bank account may be growing and their prestige may be growing, their relationship with the Lord tends to dry up a little bit. Now, is that person really being blessed? See, I, that's why I'm hesitant to agree. And the word of caution that we would say is keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep your eyes on the Lord, even as those things are, uh, you're experiencing those things in your life as well. Keep your eyes on the Lord so that indeed they are a blessing because wealth can lead a person excuse me, can lead a person away from God's plan for their lives. Now, I would also say this, and we sort of have this picture painted, that the wealthy are wicked in our society. Some people paint that picture. Everybody still wants to be wealthy. Uh, but some people say, oh, the, the evil, wicked, wealthy people. Just because a person possesses vast amounts of this world, world's wealth does not mean they've sold themselves out to Satan. All right, and so again, the question that I asked, I think two weeks ago was this, does a person possess their wealth or does their wealth possess them? And as I made the other point here, wealth can be uh, a great servant. If you're wealthy, you can use that to accomplish great things for the Lord's purposes. But many people also become a slave to their wealth so that they'll never lose it. And we never want that to be the case as well. So does your wealth possess you or do you possess your wealth? Now, God's blessing, that may make them rich by earthly standards. And I think if we employ the, the wisdom of the things that we're learning here in the book of Proverbs, we will likely find ourselves, if you will, at the end of the game, having succeeded at this game called life. And what I simply mean by that is we're, we're wise with the way we spend our money. We don't overspend, get ourselves into debt, pay exorbitant amounts of interest. And we take that money and we put it away in the bank when we, we could be flying off to Paris or something for a weekend or something, first class or whatever. Like, you know what? Coach will do. And so we're wise. We're careful. We spend our money uh, in good ways. We work hard. The boss notices that. We rise up in a position. We tend to get uh, promotions and things like that. And I think if we live our lives according to the principles of Scripture, we likely will succeed financially here on the earth. But again, that does not necessarily uh, mean that a person that has succeeded financially on the earth is being blessed by God. Does that kind of make sense where I'm going with that? I think if we were in a classroom setting, we could sort of hash that out a little bit, but, uh, a little bit more so. Now, the second point, though, about verse 22 that I think is significant, notice what it says there at the end of the verse. It says, and he adds no sorrow with it. When wealth is acquired in a way that honors God and is used for God, so both the before and the after, when wealth is acquired in a way that honors God and is used for God, such wealth comes with no regrets. Such wealth comes with no regrets, or as it says, he adds no sorrow with it. So if a person acquires their wealth 
by destroying others to gain their wealth, such wealth is going to bring sorrow and regret in the coming years, if you have any sort of heart. Some people don't go, I don't care about anybody else. I'll step on anyone to get to the top or whatever. Well, let's assume you're nice people, already, And your desire is to not drive another person down into the dirt on your way up to the top. If a person has to employ nefarious means to gain wealth, well, then that wealth can never fully be enjoyed. I gave the example, you, you, know, you steal from the IRS, and then the IRS will come back, and so you're always worrying, are they going to come back? There's a bank account or an account that the IRS has of people that have sent in money. They never got caught for stealing from the IRS, but they were so guilty. I think they call it the conscience fund, I believe. They were so guilty about having ripped off the IRS that they finally just say, fine, here, and they send a check for $3.95 or $3,000 or whatever it may be to clear their conscience. And they, or they'll send a money order so that it's anonymous so nobody can come back and get them. But they just simply want to get it off of their uh, guilty conscience. They want to wipe their conscience clean. And so if you, had to, if you obtained your money through nefarious means, you had to steal it to get it, then you can't really enjoy it. Remember that story of the woman who stole the household gods in the scripture? And when they come looking for the household gods, these gold and, and, you know, these items of wealth or whatever, when they come looking for it, they're not sitting up proudly on her mantle in her tent. They're not for everyone to come in and say, wow, that is so beautiful. They're buried in the ground, in the dirt, and she's got like her little couch thing that she sits on top of them. She can't even enjoy the wealth that she has because she obtained them through stealing them. And so, so often that is what uh, wealth that is obtained in a way that God can't bless, sorrow comes with that wealth. But God's blessing, God's peace, confidence to walk with your head up, not worrying about the tax guy coming to steal from you, assurance, hey, you're living your life and I'm blessing your life because you're living your life in a way that's honoring to me. All of that comes upon a person that honors God when they accumulate their wealth and then continues to honor him as they consume their wealth. And so we have that verse. Verse 23. We'll move on. How's that sound? It says, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. And so we see here, the fool amuses himself like a joke, something to laugh at. The fool amuses himself by doing wrong. Conversely, you have the man of understanding. And the man of understanding, he finds his pleasure not in doing wrong, but conducting his life wisely. And so the fool, when warned of his sin and its consequences, he makes a joke of the admonition. Oh, that's so funny. He laughs at the idea. If you speak to the fool about coming judgment, the fool will laugh off coming judgment. If you speak to the fool about an area of their life that the, Lord, the word of God speaks against, the fool will laugh that you come on, this book's 3,000 years old, 2,000 years old. You still believe something like that? And they'll laugh off the particular issue. When the fool sins, the fool boasts about it. And they gather around with their friends to talk about uh, the sin that they were involved in, not calling, calling it that likely. And any convictions that may have come from that thing that they did, they will laugh it away. They'll try to ignore it. They'll try to placate their conscience. That's the fool. Now, the one seeking to walk in righteousness, conversely, finds pleasure in the guidance and direction of God and his word. And they see it as gold. They see it as a treasure. They see it as a great opportunity to live their lives according to God's word and God's way because that's the way of blessing. And so the fool, or excuse me, the, the wise person finds their delight in the instructions of God, not so the fool. Verse 24, when the wicked dreads, what the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. And so often what the fool seeks to cover up or what the fool seeks to extinguish, that conviction that God in his mercy brings to their consciences, so often that which they dread will ultimately come or will eventually come upon them. And so whether that means that here on the earth, that the authorities eventually catch up with them, or it means the day that they enter into eternity, already in eternity, I guess you could say, but the day they step outside of this earth 
and they stand before God and they have to experience the consequences of their decisions. That which they dread, they will then experience. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. And so the wicked, those questions, when they're in the quiet time, in the quiet place, and they're alone with their thoughts, where they will say to themselves, you know, all these little justifications I have for my sin, what if all of these justifications really are just a lie? And that street preacher that shared that message with me, what if it was indeed true? What the wicked will think, what if there really is a God that will hold me accountable uh, to his ways? Well, the scripture makes it very clear. That which the wicked dreads will come upon them. The scripture says it's appointed unto man once to die, and then they will face judgment. Every person you know, every person in this room, will stand before a holy God one day and will face judgment. That's a heavy thing to consider. And that which the wicked dreads, what if there really is a God and what if he will hold me accountable? They will experience. Paul the apostle, he wrote, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue's going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Here on the earth, people willingly bend their knee when they recognize their sinner, that they are a sinner and that he is a great savior that can cleanse them from their sin, we willingly bow our knee before him. Jesus, you're my Lord. But the scripture also teaches even those that refuse to accept the work of Jesus Christ here on this earth, they too will one day bow their knee. It'll be a completely different bowing though. It won't be the willing bowing down before a benevolent savior. It'll be a forced bowing down. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so that which the wicked dreads will come upon them. Judgment is coming. And I think the sinner knows that to be true. When times are quiet and the jokes have stopped and everybody has gone home and they're alone there with their thoughts, they know that to be true. And our prayer is that God would use those thoughts to bring them to the place of a savior. Now, notice this also, that just as wicked men, what they fear will surely come upon them. Notice what it says about the righteous men. It says there, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. And so that which the righteous are longing for, that which they're desiring, it's also going to surely come to pass. So just as judgment is certain for those that are not in right relationship with God through his son, We also know that blessing is certain for those that are walking with God and according to his ways. We know that blessing is certain for those that have been made new by the work of Jesus Christ. The desire of the righteous will be granted. And we rejoice in that. Eternity is going to be as wonderful as you can imagine it is going to be if you are in relationship with Jesus Christ. And conversely, it'll be as dreadful as the sinner can imagine it to be if they are not in relationship with Christ. Amen? Verse 25, the thought kind of continues. It says, now when the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. I wonder if Jesus had this verse in mind when he told that story in Matthew chapter 7. He tells a word picture there of two men that build their homes. One builds upon a rock and the other on the unstable shifting sands. I'll read it real quickly. It says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and it beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Such a similar idea as what that particular proverb is sharing, Jesus tells in this particular story. His point is that the one who hears his words and does them is to be compared to a wise man that built his house with a strong foundation. And such a person's life then, or their home if you will, is strong and it's secure And even if the tempest, the storm will come, that home will stand. Jesus then compares, as does Solomon here, the second man chooses to instead build his house upon sand. And you know the song, if you taught Sunday school, you probably know it. It may look very nice, but you'll have to build it twice. You'll have to build that house once more because when that storm comes, 
There's no foundation. The sand is shifting. The house is going to come down. And to compare it to our lives, such a life will not stand when the wind and the waves come. And I can't, again, can't help but think that Jesus had Proverbs 10.25 in mind. Again, it says, when the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. And so often in this world, the wicked seem to have everything together. They seem to have everything they might need, and their bank account is full, and their home seems to be safe, and their car is always going to make it to its destination, and it's not going to break down like your car of faith might do, or what have you here. They, they may appear to have everything they need and be established and secure in this world. And what do they discover when the tempest comes? What they discover is it doesn't matter how much the money they have in the bank, or how big and how nice their home may be, or how safe and how fast their car may go, their kid is sick. And a tempest has come. Somebody has died unexpectedly. They've lost their job and didn't plan accordingly. The tempest comes and they realize all those other things do not bring the security of life that they thought they might bring. And so for the wicked, whether the tempest is temporal, like those things that I have just mentioned, or it's eternal, and they come to the end of their days, the question the Lord's going to ask them is not, so tell me, how big was your bank account? And how many square foot did you have in your particular home? The question that the Lord is going to say is, what would you do with my son? I offered you a gift of salvation, a free gift. I've sent forth my son to give his life that you might be forgiven of your sins. What did you do with that? That's the question that will be asked. So when the tempest comes, they will be shaken. Verse 26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the slugger to those who send him. Now we, we talked about this verse back when we were studying the sluggard in chapter 6. The general admonition in chapter 6 is don't be a sluggard. All right, you write that on your wall, put it on your hand. Don't be a sluggard. Solomon here, he says the sluggard is a lazy person that's always made, we, we talked about this already. He's a lazy person always making excuses for why they do nothing. And Solomon says here, they're irritating. Sluggards are irritating. They're like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. If you send them, the example here, you send them on an errand to do something, and then you quickly wish, why did I even send that guy? I was at Home Depot recently, and I'm wandering around Home Depot. I love Home Depot. It's my favorite place to go on my day off. I just wander around and talk to people uh, and buy stuff. And my wife says, stop buying stuff. All right, we don't need another shed. All right, so I get excited. But anyway, I'm walking through, and I see a guy that's got his work uniform on. He's clearly coming in from his job. And, you know, they said, kid, go down to Home Depot and pick up this. And this kid comes walking in like this. And I'm thinking, dude, come on. You can do better. You know, he, but he's like, hey, I'm on the clock. What do I have to rush for? Because you're a sluggard. Come here. Teach you how to work, you know, kind of thing. Two lessons I think we can learn from this. Number one, if you have the ability to hire people, don't ever hire a sluggard. All right? I don't know how you find out if they are or not. You get, I guess you talk to people or you, you give them a job to do. Go rake out there and let me see how you work. But lesson you can learn here is don't hire a sluggard. You will be more frustrated for having hired them than if you yourself did the work. All right, so that's the first lesson. Second one, very simple, don't be a sluggard. Stop it, okay, if you're a sluggard. Don't be a sluggard. Be an asset where you work and live. Make people glad. I'm glad they live next door to me. I'm glad he works a cubicle over from me. Be an asset where you work and live. Live in such a way that people are glad that you are on the team. Okay, don't hire a sluggard. Don't be a sluggard. All right, that's really practical, straightforward stuff. I love that. Verse 27, it says, The fear of the Lord, oh boy, we've got to hurry. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. We talked about this. It's not a universal promise, but generally speaking, a life lived for God and according to his ways tends to be a life free from the perils that so often cut short a person's life. All right? So if you're living your life in such a way, you're probably not going to overdose on drugs and die when you're 27 years old. Correct? All right, a life lived for God and according to his ways tends to be one that is free from the perils that a life that isn't lived for God bring upon them. Verse 28, the hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. 
The things righteous look forward to are realized, and they are realized with joy or with gladness, but not so the wicked. Their hopes will be thoroughly disappointed. They will not be what they thought they were going to be. Verse 29 and 30, the way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. Now, when we talk about the way of the Lord, of course, I think we're talking about the way in which God desires man to walk. And so when a man walks in that way, in the way that God desires, their life begins to become one of strength and stability. And so a person that is walking in the ways of the Lord, making decisions about where they go, what they do, how they do it, by how the Lord is directing, they begin to discover their life is becoming one of strength and stability. Their life is one that cannot be moved. And so again, even if all the wealth disappears like that, like a Great Depression kind of thing, well, that's not what their life was built on. Their life was built on the ways of the Lord and the things of God, and so now they have a life of security and stability. As it says here, the way of the Lord is their tower of strength. It's their stronghold. It's their place of safety. I've built my life by, according to God and his ways, and now I'm secure in that. Psalm 34, it says this, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. You can either run with God in the ways of God, or you can run against God and the ways of God. Either run with the Lord or against the Lord. You either run with the wind, if you're familiar with running at all. It's much easier to run with the wind than it is to run against the wind. And our kids, they do track, and we we watch the little times, and when they're going with the wind, wow, what a great turn that was. And when they're coming against it, everything slows down. You can either run with the wind or against the wind. Alexander McLaren, he paints his picture. I'm going to read the whole thing to you because I think it's really helpful. He says, the way of the Lord is like a fortress. If we choose to take shelter within it, its massive walls are our security and our joy. Conversely, if we refuse to take shelter within, then we're on the outside and the walls frown down grimly upon us as a menace and as a terror. He uses a second analogy. He says, try to stop a train and it will run you over and murder you. Get into it and it will carry you smoothly along. The ways of the Lord. Go with the ways of the Lord or go against the ways of the Lord. The admonition is the man of wisdom walks in the ways of the Lord. You know, and as you look at the same gospel, and Paul talks about this idea in the New Testament, the same gospel which to one is a fragrance of life, and you hear it and you're like, what great news. I don't know if you've ever, like, if you've been a believer for a while, sometimes you can forget how significant the gospel is. And you just have one of those encounters, maybe it's some words in a song that you're singing, and all of a sudden you're like, I'm saved. I am saved from my sin. And you tell your wife, I'm saved. She's like, yes, honey, for 30 years you've been saved. No, 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 it hit me fresh again. It's a fragrance of life. It's like that special aroma that you just want to take a deep breath in, and you're like, oh, that's good. For others, that same exact message is a message of judgment that is coming. That's not a fragrance of life, it's a fragrance of death. And yet it's the same message, and it's the same idea with the ways of the Lord. You can either go with the ways of the Lord or against the ways of the Lord. And so I think a good question for us to ask ourselves is this. Is my life, is it in harmony with or opposed to the ways of the Lord? And I I think it would also do as well to say, Lord, is there any area of my life? Because for the most part, I imagine most of us here the majority of the ways of our life are in harmony with God. But I think what the Lord would have us do is keep going further. Where the Lord, where we could ask that question, is there any area of my life that's not? And of course, we want to bring that area into submission. Let the Lord work in your heart in that area. And final two verses, 31 and 2, it says, The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. When the words, when the righteous bring forth words in righteousness, those words are going to be helpful words. But the words of the wicked invariably cause tension and they cause trouble. 
And so we, we look at a good man, a righteous man, and of course, I'm assuming we all understand what I've said earlier, no one is good, no one is righteous, but because of the work that God has done in their hearts. All right, so don't, you know, don't get confused. Well, I guess I better be a good man. Jesus makes you a good man or a good woman as he gives you a new heart. But as you're walking in the ways of the Lord, even in our world, people say that so-and-so is a good person. You should get to know them. They're a good man. They're a good woman. A good man can be depended upon, according to this verse, to bring forth a good word. Whereas the wicked knows only how to twist the facts and speak that which is perverse. Now, the word perverse there, it means twisted. It means distorted. It means deviant. It can mean degenerate. So it can go the direction of perversity that we sometimes think of that, but it just simply means twisting it and distorting those words. You can depend on the words of a righteous person. You always have to question the words of a wicked person, Solomon is telling us. The righteous man or woman knows when to talk and what to talk, what to say, so to speak. What they say that'll be pleasing to God and helpful for those that are around them. Whereas the words of the wicked are displeasing to God and provoking to those that hear them. And so again, as we've said, no wonder people say that a person's words are perhaps the best indicator of what's going on in their hearts. Because what comes forth is a revelation of their hearts. And so a lot today having to do with the tongue just a lot of different statements of wisdom. And, and I'll just close with this. I'll probably do it many times as I close out these, uh, these chapters. 3,500 years ago, I think if I did my math right, Moses wrote these words. As he's speaking to the, to the people of Israel, they're about to go into the promised land. He said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and a curse. And so, uh, Moses said, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And I quote that because I think that's exactly what we have before us today. Solomon has all these contrasts in, these, in this chapter and in our study last week as well between the way of wisdom and the way of fools, the way of the righteous and the way of, wicked, of the wicked. And I, I would suggest to you he puts it out there as a choice to each of us even to this day. Life and death, blessing and curse, good and evil. And as Moses said, I think Solomon would say as well, choose life that you may live. Take one of these verses, hopefully take all of them, but take one of these verses that we considered today and let it search out your heart. How am I doing with this? Am I on side A or side B? Am I on the side of righteousness or the side, am I more like the, the way of the wicked? And let God search you out and hopefully you'll come to the place where you say, you know what, I've been doing it that way a long time. I want to do it God's way. And you'll make that change in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? All right, good stuff. Father, thank you for these words of wisdom. Lord, I, I, just, uh, I can't help but appreciate just how good and how wise you are to reveal to us uh, yourself and then your ways in your word. And Lord, I, I freely admit for myself, and, I, and I'm going to admit it for my friends here today, so often, Lord, we go our own direction, we go our own ways, we listen uh, to the wisdom of this world. We follow the inclinations of our heart, and oftentimes that gets us into trouble. And we find ourselves sort of digging out to get back on the path of righteousness. And so, Lord, uh, I pray today that we would, these words would uh, come alive in our hearts. They would spur additional thoughts and conversations with others. They would bring strong conviction where that is needed. And Lord, you'd, uh, you'd bring us to the place where our hearts desire just you and your ways and nothing else. And even if that's hard to take that initial step, we would be absolutely convinced that that's the place of blessing and the pathway of blessing. And so, Lord, uh, there's a hundred or so of us sitting here, Lord. We present ourselves to you. Lord, do an eternal work within each of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, 
please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.